Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Andrew Loy, who is the former president of Organics International for six years from 2011, 2017. And he is now the international director of Regeneration International, which we'll talk about a bit in a bit. But he's written a book called uh, Poisoning of poisoning our children and we're going to talk about that book today and i just want to caution you that he is uh, uh, as you can tell by his accent coming to us from australia so uh, anytime we have uh, long distance over international uh, interviews they so the the bandwidth becomes challenged so uh, please excuse the less than optimal video so welcome and thank you for joining us today thank you for having me this is my second book. My first book was called The Myths of Safe Pesticides when I looked at the science and I realised that there is no science on the safety of pesticides. It's actually based on data-free assumptions and you know, these are really mythologies. When I was researching that, I, I realised there's absolutely no scientific evidence at all about the safety of pesticides and other chemicals for our children, yet we have hundreds of scientific studies showing the damage that the smallest amount of pesticides can do. The fact is the science shows there's absolute, absolutely no safe level of these chemicals for children. And I think it's very important for parents to learn about it and be aware of what the science says. One of the key arguments in your book is that the agricultural industry and global chemical industry have uh, actually ignore the concerns and manipulate. Can you imagine that they manipulate the data? So how do they get away with this strategy? The, the process is called regulatory capture. And this is where the industry actually captures the regulators and the regulators now work for the industry instead of working for us, the taxpayers and the public. And we see this in, in multiple industries. The tobacco industry was a very good example of that. Asbestos is another example. Lead and the pesticide industry, you know, takes, they, they work from the same playbook. And so you get things like the revolving door where the people who work in the regulators suddenly get high paid jobs in the pesticide industry. And the very people who say put, develop the products and pesticides, next thing you know, they get a job as senior managers in the regulatory body, in the EPA for instance, and then they start approving the products of their former company. And that, that is really a form of corruption. But we see this everywhere around the world. It's in nearly every country I look at, this, this is what happens. The regulators are owned by the industry. Yeah, it's a classic strategy that they use all the time. Uh, in fact, it's uh, really emulated best by the tobacco industry. But you had mentioned the uh, lead. And I think that's an example that most people can relate to because it's now 
acknowledged widely across the world that it's a toxin. It causes brain damage and injury and lowers IQ. And, and as a result of the primarily efforts of one courageous individual, Claire Patterson, and Claire, you would think might be a woman, but it was a man. And he's, he's since passed, but I believe in the 70s and 80s, he just took up the banner and the dates might be off by a few years, but he took up the banner to expose the fraud that the uh, automobile industry primarily, but also the oil industry had imposed upon the public and literally littered and contaminated the environment with this toxic, toxic heavy metal that still is now affecting many of us because it's in the environment. It's really difficult to remediate. But it, it, I'm going to link to the article that we wrote about that a few years ago because it, it's, it's just a, such a, a classic example of of a number of things, not, not only how these dangerous chemicals and metals can get introduced into the environment, primarily as the result of benefiting some large corporate infrastructure, but also a really inspirational component of how one single individual can actually change the whole system. And he was a scientist, I forget, he was a geologist, I think, and he actually went up to the Arctic and, and, and collected some data and really provided irrefutable evidence that in fact, the the recent introduction of lead into the gasoline was the primary reason why we had increasing levels in the environment. So, it's a it's a it's an interesting story. But let's go back to your book um, and uh, some of the ways that the industry is still continuing to manipulate us to this day, and that is the safe regulations with regard to the toxic limits. And this is crucial because if you rig the game and you identify or pre-identify that the limits are are higher than they should be, then essentially you make it easier for industry to um, essentially contaminate the environment and you and your family personally. So how, how do they get away with this? They, they get away with it by trying to suppress the independent data. There's lots of independent scientists and researchers and they publish in scientific journals and this is regarded as the gold standard in research, but this gets suppressed and instead what the regulators look at and virtually only look at are the studies submitted by the corporations. And most of these studies by the corporations are regarded as commercial incompetence. So we, the public, but also interest, other interested scientists and researchers cannot have access to them. They're hidden. And so the regulators make decisions on the safety of poisons in our food and environment based on the data that the company gives them and no one else is allowed to look at those studies to evaluate them and see, you know, are these good studies? Are the regulators making a good decision? No, it's hidden. It's, and to me, that's another sign of corruption. If, if these were good studies, why are they frightened of a transparent and open system? Why, why don't they publish them? And why don't they allow independent scientists to review them and peer review them? That's the gold standard of science. Yeah, and isn't it true that many of these standards are set based upon 
the science submitted by the very company that's seeking to sell and widely distribute these chemicals. So uh, the general perception is that, that we have these federal regulatory agencies that are objective and do independent testing to validate the safety of these things, but th that doesn't appear to be the case. Is that right? That is not, yeah, exactly. It isn't the case. The regulatory agencies rarely do any testing. They base their data, their assumptions on the testing that has been done by the companies. <laughs> and as I've said before, no one else can get access to these studies. We don't know if it's good testing. Where we do, when we do get access to them through freedom of information, we actually, most of these studies are of poor quality. Most of them actually show a whole range of diseases and risks. You know, and you know, the conclusion that most scientists, independent scientists who look at these studies show that these chemicals are harmful and they should be banned or severely restricted. Yes, indeed. It's the classic tragedy that, uh, you know, when, when they're doing this, the studies themselves, they have massive conflict of interest, and that's widely acknowledged and recognized as a primary <laughs> factor in, in validating the science. So um, what is your perception? You've looked at the literature quite extensively and reviewed it and spent lots of time uh, in, in the literature with this. What's your perception of the most significant threat that exposure to these pesticides pose? Well, when it comes to children, the, for a start, there's no specific testing done for children. There's absolutely no published scientific evidence to show any level of safety. On the other hand, the studies show that there is no level, lower level, that is safe for children. Children... Uh, when we want to talk about the unborn, the newborn, and growing children up to you know, puberty, they do not have the detoxification enzymes in their livers that we have as adults. And particularly for young children, that means that they have no way of detoxifying even the smallest amount of a pesticide or a chemical. And this, the evidence shows that even these small amounts, if, when children are exposed in utero, in the womb, or breastfeeding, or, or at a young age, it severely affects the way that they develop. It affects the nervous system, it affects the hormone system, the reproductive system. We, we can just, when you look at the science, you can see there's so many areas that can be negatively affected by these small amounts. And unfortunately, a lot of these effects last a lifetime. And, and also, we know that some of them are in, intergenerational, that those children's grandchildren will be affected. All right. So one of the concerns is that because of uh, children's immature detoxification system, that they're not going to be able to metabolize these toxins and they can cause effects. But what are the some of the clinical signs or symptoms or greatest threat to the health uh, from your perceptions? Are we looking at malignancies, tumors, uh, other hormonal endocrine disruption disorders? 
The answer is yes. We have a lot of evidence of malignancies and tumours. If we look at the World Health Organization's figures on children's cancers, they are skyrocketing, increasing. And we have good evidence, good studies, linking them back to small amounts of pesticides in food. The other really critical one is to do with endocrine or hormone disruption, and this is where we know that parts per trillion will affect the orderly development of the fetus of the unborn child and also the grown child up until puberty. And a part per trillion is the equivalent of one drop in three Olympic-sized swimming pools of water. Or another way to put it, if you have a train that carries water that's 20 miles long and you put a drop in that, that's a part per trillion. And these parts per trillion are significant in the normal development of a child because at different times um, the genes tell hormones to come on and, and develop different parts of the body, like the reproductive system, like arms, legs, eyes, the brain. And if these symptoms, so if the, these signals are disrupted by these chemicals that mimic hormones, that upsets this whole growth, normal growth pattern of children. It's called a programming event and it can affect them for the rest of their lives. These are some of the side effects of these, but I want to get back to the safety data again uh, and, and approach it from a different angle. Uh, and even if we were to give them the fact that the safety stud studies that are self done <laughs> and severely conflicted were accurate, which the likelihood is very, very low. But even if it was true and there was relatively limited harm or danger from that specific single chemical, no one, and let me emphasize that word quite a bit, no one, no agency, no organization is looking at the synergistic combination of the massive amounts of exposures that we have. So can you address that? Yes, what, what you raised is, is one of the really important issues. In the normal production of any agricultural product, any crop, uh, there are multiple pesticides that are approved, say different herbicides that kill weeds, fungicides, insecticides, and so on, with the expectation that all of them will be used in a normal crop cycle. As a result, when food is tested, most food have multiple residues. On top of that, because we eat a variety of foods, we, the majority of people are getting this cocktail of different pesticides along with the other cocktails of all the chemicals we have in the houses, the cleaning um, products, the um, phthalates and, and um, plastic softeners and other volatiles. And this mixture, there is absolutely no scientific evidence or testing to show that it's safe, but the independent testing the testing done by independent scientists show that these cocktails have synergistic effects. And when, when we talk about synergism, where instead of an additive effect where one and one equals two, 
in synergism, synergism, one and one can equal three, four, and we have examples where one and one can equal more than a thousand in toxicity. The, 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 the effects are multiplied. And th this is a huge issue because not one regulatory agency in the world is doing anything about it. And regulatory agencies like the US EPA, like the European um, uh, Food Safety Agency, they are tasked by their governments to take this in account, into account. They've been supposed to have been doing this for the last 20 years and not one has done anything on anything whatsoever. Well, I want to make this a little bit practical because it's real easy to um, ignore this information because there's no tangible uh, impression or understanding of how it impacts you specifically. Well, I'm going to share with you something that we're going to write an article on later this year because I just got back last week the report, a comprehensive report of my drinking water. Now, this is not the water I drink because I put it through a whole house filtration system and then I do a reverse osmosis on top of that. But you had talked earlier about parts per trillion. Well, I'm going to tell you the chemicals that were in my drinking water, just some of them because the list is literally 50 or longer, but some of the ones you may know that are in the water ranging from three to 11 parts per trillion in the drinking water. Um, Alicor, atrazine, lindane, chlordane, endrin, heptachlor, heptachlor, epoxide, simazine, toxaphene, 2,4-D, um, dalapron, dineseb, pentachlorophenol, uh, uh, carbofuran, oxamel, and glyphosate. But glyphosate was not in the water from three to 11 parts per trillion. It was in the water at 4,200 parts per trillion. 4,200. That's insane. So folks, I don't live in an area that they're picking on me. They're targeting me because I'm posting information about health and they want to take me out. That's not the case at all. I live in a normal community. The odds are that you're living in a community where this is in your water supply. So I would strongly encourage you to get a report from your local authorities. They, I think, I believe are mandated by law to test this annually and are required if you're in their community and you're a taxpaying citizen where they're giving you the water to provide you with a copy of this analysis for free, no charge to you. So the report, if you were to do it yourself, is probably hundreds if not thousands of dollars. So you can get it for free and then you'll see for yourself that I'm not pulling your leg, that it's in your drinking water. And if you're drinking this, you have a problem. So why don't you address the drinking water issue, the secondary contamination that we have in our municipal, unfiltered municipal water supplies, and then how that compares to some of the other occupational exposures. Yeah, you've, you've raised a really important issue. And there's one very good study done by um, Dr. Warren Porter and colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they looked um, at the normal contamination of pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers in the drinking water in the Midwest, in the USA, and they found that it had it caused severe development problems in baby rats, uh, caused, 
cause issues like thyroid problems, which is one of the master glands. Uh, a re another really important issue is the normal development of the nervous system. And we know that many of, the, many of these chemicals and many of them of the ones such as glyphosate that you mentioned in your drinking water, we know actually stop the normal development of nerves mm -hmm. in children. And the big, our brain, that's our biggest concentration of nerves. And that is developing in the fetus, in the newborn. It's developing really, you know, in a, in a large way up until we finish puberty and we the evidence shows now that many of the diseases like um, ADHD attention deficit hyperactive disorder the um, autism spectrum of disorders the bipolar schizophrenia um, you know spectrum we're also looking at issues like anger management and and a whole range of behavioural problems that we're seeing in children go back to these very small quantities of pesticides in our food, and actually in our air and in our water. They pervade the environment. Yes, indeed. And, you know, you're, I mentioned earlier in your bio that you're really interested in organic regenerative agriculture, uh, and which is actually the uh, becoming the new standard because organic conventional uh, certification has, be has become bastardized and loopholed the death where it means virtually nothing now because there's so many exemptions that you can have a, a food produced that's loaded with pesticides and still be technically certified organic. Yes, it's true, folks. So you have to be aware of that. But in an effort, you know, we've been strongly encouraging people to uh, revert back to World War II days where 50% of the food or nearly 50% of the food produced in the USA was produced in people's yards. That's true. So, uh, but now that was pretty, that was at the beginning of the chemical revolution. So were there some pesticides in the water supply back then? Yes, but nothing like today. Uh, nothing like today. So the the point of this tangent is that if you seek to grow your own food, you're going most likely to have to irrigate those crops. Uh, maybe you live in an environment where you get enough rainfall where that's not that's not necessary. But I would think most people are going to need to use some irrigation. If you're using irrigation, that water is going to have the same damn chemicals that I just list I mentioned earlier. <laughs> and unless you're filtering it, you're and you're, you're, you're doing organic regenerative agriculture, you're putting wa contaminated water on, on your food. So can you address that from your, not only your knowledge of examining this issue and the pesticides, but also as a regenerative agriculture person? Yeah, I, I've, I've been working in the area now since 1971, and I am a, I am a farmer. And also been involved in testing regenerative and organic farms one of the key areas that we talk about is increasing the amount of soil organic matter. And what we know that does, it sort of works like a buffer. It traps these chemicals. And so while the, these chemicals are in the environment, they actually get trapped in the organic matter. When we test the products, we find that the vast majority of them are actually free of these chemicals. And we have good data on that. We also know that in these good, good agricultural systems where we have good levels of 
organic matter. We have um, the various soil microbes. We have a whole biota. In fact, it's the most diverse ecosystem on the planet is, is the soil and carbon-rich soil. And those microbes actually degrade the poisons. And so we can do soil tests and, you know, so sometimes they take over a conventional farm and do the soil test. We find the chemicals in it. After a few years, um, we, we see these chemicals disappear and yeah. we test the produce. It's free. And the other point I want to make too, which is, which is also very good news for parents, we have data that within days of switching children to organic food, that their bodies eliminate these chemicals and they are largely free of chemicals Well, and within four days. I, I would question that uh, statement. Uh, I would think it's true only for water-soluble toxins like glyphosate, which is water-soluble, which is why it's such a pernicious toxin, because it is water-soluble and it goes into the water supply, goes up into the rain, contaminates the, all these systems. But the, the fat-soluble toxins, which is the yeah. really the majority of the pesticides, I, I don't think you're going to eliminate them in days. They get stored in the... In the uh, adipocytes, the fat cells, and until, unless you go through a pretty aggressive detox program, and that's, I'm writing one of my future books on that, so I've got some familiarity with it. It's going to stay locked up in your cells, even yeah. if you're eating the best diet in the world. You're right. The, the previous ones are, you know, are locked in the fat, and this is a big issue, actually, particularly uh, for women. Women generally have, because they have a, a, a more of a fat layer, that they have a, have a higher uh, burden of these chemicals. And this, this, what happens is that these chemicals mobilise and will cross the placenta. They also will go, go through as breast milk into children. And so this is why it's very important for women and for parents before they conceive to actually eat organic food and start the process of detoxifying and getting these fat-soluble toxins out of their system. Yeah, and, and fasting is a big part of that as is using an infrared sauna uh, or just sweating would be useful. But uh, that's a whole different strategy and ideally it could take years to effectively eliminate the majority of these. But it's a lifelong process because we're continually exposed to these things. There's no way we're going to change the system. But I want to get back to some really interesting points that you made about the carbon content of the soil and its ability to remediate these toxins. So have, in your review or your experience, do you find that the higher the carbon concentration, the, the, there's a really close correlation to the microbial life in the soil and specifically the mycorrhizal fungi? Uh, and if so, what is the sort of the threshold where you start to see some, become less concerned about these pesticide exposures uh, in the irrigation water, if you're above a certain level, like so three percent carbon, four or five percent. Yeah, the the threshold I like to use is around three percent. We start mm -hmm. start seeing positive changes at about one point five percent. Yeah, the, the thing is to remember that many of our agricultural soils around the world have less than one percent. Many, and in most places, they started with 5 to 6%. Yeah, and or even more. The Midwest was like in the 10s. Yeah, yeah. The and, and, and they burnt it. 
yeah, through using um, bad practices, particularly nitrogen fertilisers, it's been oxidised and turned up into greenhouse gases into CO2 instead of being in this in the soil to how you say instead of being in the soil as the the basis of mm-hmm. keeping the microbes the beneficial bacteria the beneficial fungi all of these are just essential to good crop growth and actually we also know that they're essential to the health of the plants and the food that we we eat from those plants well that's good to know because uh 1.3% 1.3% or even certainly 1.5% it's a pretty low threshold and clearly most agri- most commercial agricultural systems are be- well below that because of their practices and you know the soil really isn't soil anymore it's just a substrate to hold the water and the chemicals that they're feeding the plants it's not the way it was designed to be in any way shape or form but that is pretty easy to replicate you know i've got a system here and even in florida which is notoriously difficult to get over 5% carbon. I'm probably 8 or 9%. I haven't had a formally measured in the process of it. It's just in my four or five inches of topsoil that I've created with uh, primarily wood chips. So you, you wouldn't expect it to be anything but because wood is com- completely carbon. So when it breaks down, it's, it's going to go right back into the soil. It's deep, dark, rich, humic acid that you can see. It just beautiful but and it supports plant life but it's good to know i wasn't aware of that i actually installed an ir- uh, a whole house ir- filter system on my irrigation water just to prevent that so it's better safe than sorry uh i still think there's some potential synergistic toxicity if you're especially if you're essentially full your spraying your plants you know and these you've got dozens and dozens of these chemicals that are synergistically combining which can't possibly be acutely beneficial for the plant uh certainly by the time they reach the soil the soil microbes can take care of it but you know when they're on the plant that's not a good thing yeah i uh, look I, I agree with that if you can get the the water into the soil and we have high enough carbon levels, um, the, these molecules actually bond to the carbon because really the, the, these um, pesticides are actually synthet- synthetic organic molecules mm-hmm. and they will bond to the organic matter and stay there. And the plants actually take up the nutrients through a process called ion exchange and where they, they can actively select what they need. They're not passive. Um, I suppose you say in conventional agriculture, where industrial agriculture, where they are force-fed these water-soluble fertilizers, they have no choice as to what they take up. And many of these um, fertilizers have lead, cadmium, heavy metals, and they're soluble. And so when you water with those in the ground or, um, you know, spray them, they take up these heavy metals. With an organic system, it, it, uh, it's the other way around. The, 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 these toxins bond with the, the organic matter and the plants actively select which molecules they need so they can avoid these toxins. And that's when we find when we do the testing, there's a huge difference. Even if they're grown in the same region, there's a huge difference in the amount of toxins in organic food as against conventional. 
And, you know, the largest study just came out a few years ago, which is actually a meta-analysis of something like 300 comparison studies between organic and conventional, found that organic food always has significantly lower levels of these toxins and, and, uh, and heavy metals. Yeah, and the converse too is it's also higher and more nutrient dense in the nu- the beneficial nutrients that you need. Yeah, look, and, and I want to say that the, the the latest studies show exactly that. When people say there's no evidence that organic food um, has more nutrients, that's that's not true. The best scientific studies show that organic food does have higher levels and particularly in the, the the various antioxidants and these compounds we know are protective compounds for us the plants actually make them as protective compounds that's their defense against pests and diseases and when we eat these compounds like lycopene in um, tomatoes or uh, reservatol in in, in uh, red grapes um, and so on, we actually get these benefits. So what this actually helps us is it helps us deal with all these other toxins in the environment. By having a diet that's rich in the right nutrients and antioxidants, that gives our body bodies a much better chance of dealing with this toxic burden. Yes, indeed. So uh, it would seem wise, and uh, you make a uh, a plea for uh, pesticide-free commercial agriculture, but how realistic is that? And what do you think are the alternatives if it's not realistic? I've been involved in this for 45 years, and I know the best organic regenerative systems are actually higher yielding than industrial agriculture. It's a myth to say that all organic is low yielding. We now have good science on how we can actually grow nutrient-dense, healthy food, and we can get higher yields per acre than the industrial systems. In fact, the industrial systems are running down the environment so quickly, they're producing toxic food that you know, this world will not survive if we continue to go down that agricultural pathway. The only way we're going to survive is by going over to regenerative systems that we know are good for the environment, increase biodiversity, increase the health of the regions, make sure that we don't have all these poisons going into our water supply, in our air supply, in our food. And we're at the same time, as avoiding all these poisons, we're growing food that helps to regenerate our health. It helps to protect us against um, degenerative diseases, against toxins. You know, really, this is win-win-win. Yeah, and it also protects the environment too. I mean, as you mentioned or alluded to earlier, the Earth is really one of the ideal carbon sinks, the Earth and the ocean. So instead of... Uh, you know, allowing it to go up and escape into the atmosphere and cause problems with greenhouse gases, it is much better served to be in the earth, feeding the microbes and producing these nutrient-dense foods. That's what it was designed to be. It wasn't designed to be liberated. So, uh, you know, movement in this direction is a win, triple win. Uh, So 
Go ahead, you can comment on that. I, I was going to agree with you that this is actually a really important issue because one of the other major issues that we are facing is climate change and it's a huge issue and it's getting worse and worse all the time mm -hmm. and we know that with regenerative farming where we're actually increasing the organic carbon we can reverse climate change not just stop it we can bring it back to the way the climate was supposed to be before the industrial revolution because all that carbon that we put in the soil that our plants take that out of the atmosphere mm -hmm. as carbon dioxide and that then gets deposited into the soil as soil organic matter. And we have the data that if we could convert farming to regenerative practices, we could actually reverse climate change within 30 years, less than a generation. Yeah, that's just amazing. Now, I've just picked up a parcel of property next door to me that's vacant. It's about an acre, and I'm loading it with... Um, wood chips and other biomass as a substrate. But then I'm, once, that's, once that's finished, I'm gonna grow cocktail cover crops of primarily clover, like a dozen or more different species and let that thing grow, suck in the CO2 from the atmosphere as fuel and deposit that in the soil and not only deposit the carbon, but also clover is beautiful because it has these nitrogen fixing bacteria on it that increase the nitrogen in soil because that's usually a rate limiting nutrient uh, and if you have wood chips you know they're they're pretty notorious for being heavy in carbon and virtually no car no no nitrogen so it's a great combination if you've got the time and the energy to do it that's a magnificent way and i'm really excited i'm going to document this all in video or pictures and and show what you can do because i think it's just magnificent you know would if you just apply simple natural and relatively inexpensive strategies you can have massive remediation and, and enormous biological benefits in fact what, what, what you're proposing is one of the quickest and most efficient ways of improving carbon uh, with the long-term carbon the humus the humic acid actually comes from the lignans in wood mm -hmm. and so if you've got wood tough um, coarse plants they are the ones that actually give you that long-term carbon that we want to build up and actually make humus. And, and humus is the most important part of uh, organic matter. It's the one that can actually store up to 30 times its own weight in water. So it drought-proofs you. You can use a lot less water. It stores water better. It actually stores most of the nutrients and stops them from leaching out in, in, into waterways and you know, creating dead zones like you know the whole uh, the the whole Gulf area south of the Mississippi. Uh, there's lots of these dead zones around the world now. The advantage of humus is that these nutrients don't wash out; they actually stay on the farm and feed your plants. That's where you want them. Yeah, you know, and there are many other. Sorry, there's many other benefits that actually come from having humus-rich organic matter systems. Yeah, and you can create it. I mean, you have to be a little intelligent about it, but it's certainly possible, and it's a, just a brilliant project that benefits you and your family. So I'm you know, one of our strong recommendations is to be involved in a local, either in your own home or, or area or community, growing your own foods, and there's some simple strategies to do that. So getting back to your book, though, what advice do you have to parents to protect their children from these pesticide residues? It's very simple, really. Firstly, 
don't use these pesticides in the house and garden. You don't need them. And there are multiple books on alternatives. It's a bit like when people say, oh, what's the alternative? And that used to be the argument for uh, keeping lead in our gasoline. They said, oh, you know, we, we have to have it, otherwise the engine's going to knock. Now, does anybody worry about um, the engines knocking? No, we never needed lead. And it's the same with pesticides. We don't need these synthetic pesticides. There are lots of natural ways that we can deal with these in the house and garden. And the, the other really important thing is where possible, try to get as much of your food as organic and to make sure that it's either certified or you know it comes from a CSA or, you know, some an, a local farmer's market, people that you can trust, you know, are doing the right thing. And get your food that, that way. Avoid processed foods. You go back to the way food is supposed to be, which is fresh, local, wherever possible, and cook real food. Avoid all these you know, processed food. Not only is denatured in terms of the nutrient value, it's got all these different additives that we also know are toxic. Once again, there's no science to show that they're safe, but we're learning more and more about the dangers of all these food additives. So, you know, just go back to eating good, fresh, healthy food. It's going to make a huge difference to your children and to yourself as well. Yeah, sounds simple, but it's profoundly effective. So do you have any other recommendations that you'd like to make before we close? I think probably the, the big recommendation is that you know, change has always come from people, not from governments. And you have to make this change yourself. And it's simple to make. And by enough of us making this change, we'll actually change agriculture because the retailers and farmers will be forced to change production to meet the market. Buying organic food, buying local food, going you know, to CSAs is actually a very powerful political and change act. Your dollars can do more to change the system than probably anything else. Yes, you can vote with your pocketbook, and we've already made quite dramatic uh, improvements in uh, positioning the responsive industry to these influences. So you can do it, and it's just a matter of not only doing it yourself, but uh, certainly by leading examples to your friends and relatives and encourage even more people to do it, because the more people that are involved, the stronger the incentive is for industry to, st to stop changing their destructive and toxic practices. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, th thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.